Welcome to the Beyond High Performance Podcast, featuring content and conversations from me, Jason Jaggard, along with our elite coaches at Novus Global, their high-performing clients, and the faculty at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. On this podcast, you'll hear some of the world's best executive coaches and high-performing leaders, artists, and athletes discuss how they continue to go beyond high performance in their lives and businesses. I was in survival mode. It's just I was just trying to do something that I knew I loved because I really need to search deeply for that. And then just give it 150% and just hope for the best. I never lost hope, but I did lose a little bit of trust. Today's episode is from the Meta Performance Show, where I sit down with high performers who continually aspire to go beyond high performance. On this episode, I get to talk with the one and only chef, Don Burrell. Don went to the Olympics in 2000 for the long jump before a series of injuries forced her to rethink her entire vocational future. She turned to cooking and the results have been nothing less of extraordinary. She's worked with everyone from chef Tom Akins in London to Houston's Monica Pope before landing at Uchi Houston, which led her to becoming the sous chef at the award-winning sister restaurant Uchiko in Austin. She then became the title chef at the Modern Southern Restaurant Culture, where she won her first James Beard nomination for Best Chef in Texas. And of course, she was a finalist on season 18 of the hit show Top Chef, which is where our conversation begins. She helps run the nonprofit Lucille's 1913, which serves as a conscious community collective for building vertically integrated ecosystems to combat food insecurity and waste. We'll explain what that means in a second, and it's awesome. And her new restaurant, Late August, will be opening soon with her signature global comfort flavors and exploring the intersections of African and Asian cuisines. In this episode, she graciously shares about the challenges of being in the shadow of super talented siblings. I know what that's like. How to start over when your dreams have failed and then become the best at something when you're already an adult and more. We hope you enjoy the show. Are you looking to become a coach? Are you looking to grow in your ability to coach others towards amazing results? Coaching is a booming industry. And with certifications everywhere, it's hard to know where to start or who to trust to train you to make a real difference in the lives of others. That's where the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching comes in. This isn't just an online course that you buzz through so you can call yourself a coach. At the Meta Performance Institute, you get to learn from coaches with thriving coaching practices, phenomenal track records, and some of the most successful clients in the world. The content is tailored to you depending on where you are and your coaching abilities. We have courses for people at every level, whether you're starting completely from scratch or you already have a six-figure coaching practice, the Meta Performance Institute can help you get to the next level and serving others powerfully. To take our free assessment and see if the Meta Performance Institute is right for you, just go to www.mp.institute. That's www.mp for Meta Performance.institute. We'd love to work with you. Don, hello. Thank you so much for being on the show. How are you? I'm so good. I watched some of the clips from Top Chef when you were on, but I have never watched like a full season or anything. Do they edit you to make you look like you know what you're doing or are you that poised? Oh, that is a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> I would have to say that it's a combination of the two. There are things that, that you can't edit to make better. It is, yeah. it is what it is. But yeah. then there's same things that they can completely omit that may have made you look like a buffoon. The total act. So you just never know. You You just never never know know what you're going to see. Yeah. But when you watched it, did you think, oh God, here comes a thing that, oh, I hope they don't show. And then it's like, bloop. And they didn't didn't cut any of that. They didn't use any of that. They just went to the next thing. Well, like 80% of it was that for me. And so (laughs) (laughs) I'd have to say, and there was no way they could not use most of it. So like, I just knew it was coming. I had to like brace myself, you know, just you know, showing my true sense of clumsiness mm-hmm. and also like my, you know, my ability to cry when I'm feeling emotional or mm-hmm. to, or to, to have feelings for someone like to empathize, you know, those yeah. are all, those things are all seen very clearly on the show along yeah. with like my, my feistiness that cannot be hidden in any way. <laughs> Nor should it. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get to several times in different interviews I've listened to. Uh, I think authenticity is something you've mentioned multiple times. Is I think a, a secret to your, maybe a secret sauce to your success. I'm going to ask about that in a little bit. I want to pin a pin in that, but I do want to start by saying I'm a little intimidated because I am a horrible cook. I have a deep respect for cooking, but I'm I'm a horrible cook. And so, but I think that I'm going to really enjoy this conversation because of my unfamiliarity with your domain of expertise. I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to learn a ton. So I may ask some questions so, so for people who are listening that understand the chef world. Some of my questions might come across as stupid, but I think that if there's anyone listening like me who, who maybe 
can't cook and or cooks a little bit, I think you're going to enjoy this as much as I am. And I'm really grateful for your time. And to talk about cooking and leadership, like the, the parallels of cooking and leadership. Now, one way of kicking this off, there's a quote that you had. I'm going to pull up and I just loved it. And you know, maybe it was from your bio. And it was talking about food as language. Mm-hmm. And in the coaching work that we do, we, we pay attention a lot to language. And I'd never thought about food as language. And maybe, maybe that's just a line that, that your PR person used that I just fell in love with. But is that something that resonates with you? And could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I, I think that... I definitely think that it's something that she crafted, but it it does speak... To, but she also knows me. So it speaks to who I am as a person. Yeah. Have I ever said it? Um, Maybe not in that way, but I do believe it's true. I think that food more specifically is a love language and Mm. like it bridges gaps between people and cultures. And it's a meeting place around a table where people can truly get to know each other. And if you're feeding someone a wholesome meal, you are striving to meet uh, their need, which is a universal need, which is Mm. nourishment. Yeah. And a second need is, you know, just camaraderie and a sense of love or togetherness, which is a, like the human design. Like we are not meant to be exist, you know, in a silo as people, you know. Yeah. And so we can we can just gather around the table and get to know each other and feed each other souls as long as and as we're feeding our the own belly. So I think that she hit it on the head. Well, I love that. And can we call it a new restaurant with late August? Yeah, late August. It pays homage to the Sears catalog because yeah. we're housed in a historic Sears building downtown. What a and great you know, location. Yeah. Um, you know what the Sears catalog means, right? Oh, are you those, kidding me? Those nostalgic feels that you get when you uh, think about how you're on the floor, on your belly, dogging in these pages of things that you only wanted or wish to have. Yes. Yeah, that's what, that's what late August is about. And it, it is even like the texture of the Sears magazine, like the smell of the magazine, yeah. you would wait for it to come in the mail. And then you would like, for me, I would go to the toy section. Yes. Yeah. The toy uh. section is where it's at, you know? And then I was a girl, I, I love clothes too. So I'm like, Oh, I want those, those yes. uh, pairs of pants or, you know, I want, you know, I, I just would, it was a moment where I could just wish, you yes. know, I could wish to have something. Yes, it was. Yeah. And I knew that I would circle everything. My poor parents, they would go through the toy section. They was like 30,000 <laughs> things circled. But it, was, right. but it wasn't like an expectation. It was. It was like hope. It yeah, was, it was just or hope. Just, or dreaming. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I love well, well, wonderful. So then I want to talk about the dreams and we're going to go back to your previous life as an athlete. But one of the things that I remember hearing about late August, and, and I'm checking to see if this is still true, is it going to have Lazy Susans in the restaurant? Yes. Yeah. So, um, so, so the design yeah. will be, um, I really want a, an authentic, uh, family style, um, yeah. dinner, um, with, with share plates yeah. and the best way to share is with a la- lazy Susan. Yeah. And yeah. And, and I think that speaks to the community that you're wanting to build. Exactly. That is uh, very, that's so romantic to me. And I mean, that in the broadest sense of the, of the word. Yeah. And, and t- so let's, so let, let's go back in time. So, your passion for community and your passion for f- for food is so obvious. Have both of those things been a part of your journey since you were a kid in Philadelphia, or did one of those come first? Uh, the passion, my passion for food came first. Okay, I'd have to say food is very important to my family, my family's culture. My most fond memories are our, uh, holiday seasons when we would gather around a table and mm. share our lives um, because we. You know, there are only three times a year that we actually would do this because everyone has their own separate families. They're very busy. Mm-hmm. So it's just nice to come to come together during this holiday seasons. And our grandmother, our grandmother and aunts would would cook, you know, amazing meals for us mm. um, to all share and be a part of. In retrospect, I realized that I come from a food family, like a, mm. a bunch of culinary professionals mm. that I had that I did not realize when I was growing up. My really? un- yeah. My uncle was a hotel chef for the longest time. Really? After he got out of the Navy. Mm-hmm. My aunt is a culinary professional in the school system. She's a, like the food director for um, her, her school system in Delaware. Her daughter leads this amazing team of young chefs for her high school in uh, DC. And my, my cousin makes the most amazing cakes in the world in, in North Carolina. They're so beautiful. And like she, she has a huge clientele base and that mm. is so ridiculous. And yeah, you know, and here I am over here being a chef and not really thinking about 
the, you know, the culinary professions of all my family. I have it honest. It's in the blood. It's in the blood. Well, with ath- athletics is in the blood mm-hmm. as, as well. So can yes. you tell us a little bit about the athletes in your family? Uh, yes. I was led to Houston by my uh, brother closest in age. He's about six and a half years my senior. His name is Leroy Burrell. He came here first to attend the University of Houston. He's a two-time former world record holder of the 100-meter yeah. dash and a two-time Olympian. And I had those footsteps following. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. Okay. So, so that's, a, a, that's a little tongue in cheek. Like, was that intimidating? Was it, how was that having a brother who had such a bright spotlight on him? It was awful. Like one would mm. think that it was great, but it was really for, for a teenager that lacked a lot of confidence for a number of reasons. It kind of almost destroyed me. Mm. You know, one would find it, find strength in it, but I found that I could, I had a hard time measuring up to it. To yeah. be honest. And you know, yeah. and it wasn't until like I don't know, the last 10 or 15 years that I was able to verbalize this and how how horrible those years were for me. Have you two talked about it? Oh, I think it was after I started to come into my own as an athlete that I was able to you know, tell him that I overcame this obstacle that he may have not known that existed. Yeah. Well, that's that's yeah. what's interesting about family is you don't know what obstacles you, that even your path creates for others. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, we're blind to it sometimes, which is why like the two best words that a parent can say is, I'm sorry. <laughs> you right. know? Yeah. 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 And, uh, and uh, to their child or their or their younger si- sibling, it really means the world. It really does. Yeah. yeah. It really, well, so then, because I know that you did basketball, you did you were doing some track and field and then you did basketball. Was that part of the intimidation? Did you get into to basketball as kind of always staying away from him? For sure. Like I got in trouble when I was in seventh grade and I got suspended and they were like, well, you can only choose one sport. And which is weird. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, and so I chose basketball. Yeah. I didn't understand the one sport thing. It was like, oh, you're punished. No, that makes no sense. You can't be fit. Like yeah. you, you know, you I don't know. You can't diversify your interests. <laughs> exactly. Not at all. Choose one. Okay. Yeah, I chose basketball. That was the pinnacle of my brother's collegiate career. Like he was breaking national records and all this mm-hmm. stuff. I was like, I want, I don't want anything to do with that. Cause right yeah. now I don't even have a name. I didn't have a name at that time. I was like, Oh, you're Leroy's little sister. Hmm. Ha. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My, it's name, my, my name is Dawn. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, you know, that's fascinating, Dawn, because you really have crafted an identity for yourself and it's not like you synthesized it like it's authentic not to use that word too much but like it's authentic Mm -hmm. to you Mm -hmm. so maybe we'll go there now in terms of and if you don't mind we can even skip over the olympic stuff i don't know it's a beautiful well it's a beautiful part of your story but i just feel like what you're up to now is is you've expanded your story yeah, and, well, and, we'll, we'll touch on it because some of the strengths that I have as an Olympic athlete, they overlap. So yeah, well, and actually, yeah. that's that's a great next question. So how do they overlap? I don't think when most people think Olympic athlete and culinary chef, they they see those as completely disparate. But in your mind, they're connected. Can you talk a little yes. bit about how that works? Sure. As an athlete, you have to push yourself to get to uh, the Olympic level. You have to put your, push yourself beyond um, what you think that you can do physically. Hmm. And you have a coach to help you do that. And once you break these thresholds, you know, a whole new world of your athletic abilities, they become open to you. Hmm. There's a lot of training that goes along with it, a lot of determination, a lot of focus, willingness to endure lots of pain and to face that same pain week in, week out um, without fear. Hmm. And so it just makes you resilient. As a person, it makes you mentally strong because that is 80% of accomplishing the things that I just mentioned. Yeah. And it gives, and it makes you courageous um, because you know no bounds. Is that something that's a, uh, this is a little bit of a leading question. Is that like a light switch or a volume knob? Like if you could look at your Olympic career at maybe like month six and then contrast it with like year two, can you see in way, ways you've grown, obviously physically in performance, but could you mm-hmm. could you measure your mental performance also increasing? Yes, um, my, but my mental performance increased because my confidence increased, and my confidence increased because my 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 ability to do more and to become more strong in, increased. So it was both a light switch and a knob. Interesting. Um, because 
Yeah, because I had to first realize what I'm what I'm actually capable of. Boom, that's the light switch. Then I had to be progressive in everything that I that I did to mm-hmm. to meet, reach my goal, which is the volume knob. Was there a moment when the light switch flicked? Was there an aha like I can do this? Was there a moment like that for you? Yes, um, it's when I switched coaches. Actually, really. My brother's coach was Coach Tom Telez, and he was my collegiate coach. Mm-hmm. And his coaching style is good for many. It's good for people. For, it's good for men because of their their specific muscular makeup. Hmm. It's good for women who are naturally strong and have a great muscular build, but not for little pion, puny skinny Don um, who needed to build. <laughs> you know, I was just too I was too light and too weak for Hmm. his training program. Hmm. So um, once I changed coaches and my coach was uh, named Wen Yang and Mm -hmm. he he was just worked three miles away at the neighboring university. Once I started working with him, like I gained like 14 pounds in the first year and it was it was muscle. And one would think that that doesn't equate to long jump. But I mean, it increased my strength exponentially. Like I was able to propel myself better because I was stronger. And so once I gained that strength, I knew I knew that I could do anything under his tutelage. So you saw the results. I saw the results. Yeah. And did he know ex- did he know that's what was needed? Or, or was there a searching process or was it like, no, we need to add some muscle? No, and then he we- said, you too skinny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what he told me. He's like, you need he's like, you need to develop your strength. And I'm not making fun of him. That's how he would speak to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, it's like he like he was like, we need to make you stronger. Yeah. Like, uh, like ox is what he would say. And I'm <laughs> like, like I'm, yeah, I'm like, I'm ready. Let's do it. And so it was this- very painful. Did that mean that there were certain things that you weren't doing? I guess what I'm thinking is, was in most of the focus on the on, on the workouts and the training all around adding bulk versus with the other coach, which is more some of the, I don't know, like technique and things like okay. that. Uh, Tom Telez's philosophy and approach to coaching is technique-based. Okay, yep. He's an amazing technician like when it comes to the mechanics of uh, sprinting and the biomechanics of jumping and how one should approach uh, doing either one of those things, including starts and and whatnot. But these techniques are difficult to excel at if you don't have the strength to move through the motions. And so I was not, I was not strong enough. Hmm. So I would, I would have great technique, but my results would not be good because I had an inability to propel myself far with the strength that I had. So then when you worked with, with and say his name again, the new... When, when Young. When, when Young. When you worked with Wen Young, most of the beginning of his workouts were about bulk and then technique came later? Well, not necessarily bulking, but definitely like making me stronger. Strength. So, yeah, it's strength. Uh, and also explosive, giving me power. Interesting. And what came with that is a little bit of bulk. So it wasn't... The bulk was not, was, was not the goal. Wasn't the goal. Uh, yes. And weight gain was expected because I was uh, increasing my muscle mass, uh, you know, by, by 20%. Wow. And with that came the power to move through the motions that I learned. And, um, uh, coach Yang, he was a, a technician as well, but he, he was like, as a woman, you need to, to train your muscles to do these things because it's not something that you would naturally have. That's fascinating. Um, yeah. So then is there... Are there chef? By the way, so my nephew, who's hopefully listening to this, I'm going to make him listen to this. He's he's 15. He loves mm-hmm. to cook. Mm-hmm. And I was actually before our time talking today, yesterday actually, I was as I was researching you, I was also googling like chef classes in LA and things like that. Like, how do I help him get a leg up in terms of exploring and cultivating this desire and, and love he has for food and mm-hmm. for flavors and cooking? Are there chef coaches? You know, like when you when you were pivoting from the world of sport to the, the culinary arts are there, is it the, the, is it the same and are different chef cooks or different chef coaches focusing on different techniques? What does the world of chef coaching look like? In quality kitchens and great teaching kitchens, there are. Really? Yes. But of restaurants and kitchens are not that. Not that. Yeah. They're not that. Only the elite kitchens or the the kitchens that make authentic food of that of of their culture mm-hmm. are those places and then you have to find someone who's willing to teach you 
within those described places. And so that's why there are so few, in my opinion. I was very careful when I chose where I chose to work. And even though there were some teachers within my chefs or what have you, but Mm -hmm. not everyone there was a teacher. I'm a good student. And um, regardless of whether you're going to teach me directly or not, I'm going to watch you and I'm going to learn it. And once I learn it, it's going to be mine. They pull me over and say, Dawn, come watch this. Or I'm te- watching you teach someone else that skill that I really love, would love to learn. I'm still going to learn it. Well, yeah. And, and so that's actually exciting to hear. You love to learn. You're a good student. Yeah. By the way, what would you say are the attributes of a good student? Like if I was going to, again, not to use my nephew Elijah as an example, mm-hmm. but if you're going to say, hey, this is the kind of person you need to become if you want to learn how to cook like me. Mm-hmm. What, what, what are the attributes of that, of a good student? To follow instruction, uh, to pay attention when, some, when you're being taught uh, something, to write it down and to ask questions. And do you feel like that's rare? Is that, is that unique to you or are you surrounded in a world where everyone's doing that? Of doing those things that I just mentioned? Yeah. No, not everyone's a good student. Uh, not, not everyone wants to be a student of this craft. You know, um, some people just want to treat it as a job hmm. and they come in and they learn only their, their skill set for what they need to do in that job, hmm. which is I'm, I'm the fry cook. I only know how to fry. Don't ask me anything about sauteing anything. I don't know anything about that. I know this. That person is not looking necessarily for a career in this in in this industry. You yeah. know, they they don't want to grow beyond what what it is, and th- and it's fine because the re- restaurant world is built off of people who are doing a job, right? Yeah. And then there are people who are going to grow into becoming the chefs and the leader in the leadership positions in the kitchens that are essentially uh, teaching kitchen, and they aspire to not only learn everything but also learn more than what is taught within their work system so that they can grow even more. And then they have more information to teach other people. And that's how we keep the quality cooks and chefs going. As like a, creating a culture? Yes, a it's, it's a culture, yes. We have some exciting news to share with you. But first, have you ever wondered what tools and techniques our coaches use to do what they do at Novus Global? Or maybe you've just wanted a one-stop resource for coaching that you can use with yourself and those you lead. Well, for the past several years, we've been working on a book that shows you how to do just that. It's 250 pages where we pull back the curtain to show you our method for helping leaders go beyond high performance. We packed this thing as full as we could with great tips content, and stories from our clients and coaches on how they apply the tools we use every day in work and leadership. And while our book won't be out until the summer, we wanted to give you an opportunity to begin engaging with the material right now. To do that, go to novus.global backslash book, where you can sign up to be a part of the Beyond High Performance Network, where we'll be handing out advanced copies and chapters from the book, doing free interactive webinars with our top clients and coaches, and other free resources and surprises that I think you are going to love. So if you don't want to wait until the summer to get access to the book, if you're longing to be part of a network of leaders that all want to go beyond high performance, or if you simply want more free resources from our world to help you and your team, then head over to novus.global backslash book and sign up today. How soon after sport did you get into a teaching kitchen? Mm. Uh, I would say I started working with Monica Pope. That was my first real restaurant job. I mean, I tried to go to Europe to learn from uh, renowned chefs and that didn't work out because I, long story short, I couldn't get a work visa. Mm. I was too old, yada, yada, yada. You're not allowed to learn at 35. You know, it's like, you know, so that's, that's basically what they told me. So I came wow. back home. I'm, I'm a little Quentin Tarantino-ing this out of order a little bit. So August. was it after sport, that was like the first pivot? Like is, okay, that was a good season for me. Now what do I want to do next? I'm going to go overseas and 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 learn from some of the best cooks in the world. Or was that what, what was your thinking as you were transitioning? There were a few things in in between that. It was a hard time time period for me in life, and so I was just basically in survival mode during that time period. Hmm. I was suffering from like the death of my athletic career hmm. that I I fought for for seven years. After winning the world champion the world championship, I told my ACL in mm-hmm. two thousand one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to have this have a surgery, and I fought my way back for seven years. And right before national championships, each year I would injure myself um, mm-hmm. because I, you know, I, I I'd increase my training, increase my training, and then something would happen based on like 
I had a subsequent injury in my back and my hips were misaligned because of my knee surgery, all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And so every year would just rear t- ugly head. And I like by 2008, you know, if I don't make this Olympic team, um, I'm done. Yeah. And, that, and so, you know, that was the decision I made and I stuck to it. Yeah. I injured myself right before national trials after I qualified for the trials oh. and, and there was nothing, there was nothing to be done. I couldn't even compete. I went, but I couldn't compete. Yeah. And then, which is heartbreaking to be like so close. Yeah. Every year it was, it was like, uh, you know, it was, my heart was broken. It was yeah. just, it was too much. And yeah. so looking back, I realized how hard that was on me. Yeah. And then in, uh, 2008, I also, I was getting divorced mm-hmm. and then Toward the end of the year, my father also died. Wow. And so I'm like, you know, culinary school is definitely the way that I'm going to be able to survive all of this mm. um, trauma. And um, I call it the horrible trifecta of 2008 or um, 2009. So, yeah. yeah. So I went to culinary school. I enrolled in 18 hours per quarter just mm-hmm. so I can get done quickly and get out working. Mm-hmm. And um, while I was doing that, I just, took a job for a food service uh, system that worked out of uh, private schools. And I was like, you know what? I don't care about image or anything. I just need something to do with my time. Yeah. And so there I was cafeteria later or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> you, know yeah. but, you know, but um, I would, but the system served like a wholesome food, authentic food for the children. It was yeah. mostly for, you know, wealthy, wealthy kids or whatever, whatever, but it was a really nice kind of mental break that I gave myself, um, just going in, put my head down and doing the work to try to, to come to a place where I can like survive, you know, through this hard time. And then after that, I started catering on my own. After I graduated from school, culinary school, I started catering and, and, uh, doing farmer's markets. And then I traveled the train. Oh, no, it's great. I just, there's so oh. much goodness here. Like there's oh, so, oh. Yeah. So for people who are listening, as you're transitioning, sometimes in recovery, we call it a sober job. Oh, yeah. you know, sometimes you want to find a job that can just be a container for you to heal. And it's not like you're, it's not like you're making big bucks or anything, but it's stable. You can count on it. You can, po- it allows you to focus on other things. You know, yeah. I think, I can't remember, Emily Dickinson, I think, uh, worked at the post office for like 20 years. Oh, that, wow. You know, it's like, that's how, how, like, how did she be able to create such great poetry? It's like, well, by not having to worry about, all these other things. And so if it's someone's listening and they're thinking about transitioning careers, one thing is, especially if you're doing it, not feeling at your best yeah. is, to, is to find a sober job where you can just, and what's the brilliance I think Donable you did is you found a sober job that's also attached nominally to your future, you know? And so I think there's some brilliance there. You got to be around food, even though it wasn't like, you know, the most the type of food I wanted to do, but it was still, it was still food. And wow. Thank you for that. Cause I, I thought, I was lost during that time, but you're letting me know that I actually made a, a sound choice and I didn't, yes. I never re- really saw it that way. So thank you. Yeah. For that. Um, yeah. No, and there's, that's kind of what I mean is just things that you, you, you have a lot of embedded wisdom researching you and studying. You, you don't get to do, be the best at things without some kind of embedded wisdom. And mm-hmm. I like listening to people like you talk because it's, it's just fun to hear you just kind of like, you've been painting like the karate kid. You've been waxing the car and painting the fence and all the things yeah. and, and it's like, oh, I didn't know I knew how to do that. Also, there's a question I was going to ask you, which was as you were in the sober job, um, making the meals and doing the things, are you strategizing during this time? Are you just like going home and like tapping out? Like what was what was your orientation towards the future? There was a time period that I was only going home and tapping out. I would go to work at 7 a.m. or 6.30 and then I'd go straight to school I would get out of class at 1030 and then I would mm-hmm. go back and do it all again. So um, it was only that, you know, I stayed busy all the time. You know, I, I just did what I needed to do to get through that time period. And I think that it ultimately worked out. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't pay much attention to how much money that, <laughs> that we would actually make. Like once I got out of school, I remember like my 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 uh, instructor was saying, yeah, well, as a line cook, you're only going to make like, I don't know, $9 an hour if you're lucky. And I was like, uh, uh, did, she, <laughs> did she say $9 an hour? <laughs> it was like, uh, due dil- diligence is a must. I'm telling you, That's- like I did not study. I just dove right in and I didn't even think, I was like, surely I'd be able to make a living wage doing something I love. And I didn't even pay it. I mean, that part of the research, I skipped completely. Skipped I completely. 
Yeah. <laughs> like, are you missing a zero there? Did you say ninety thousand? Ninety, no. or did you say like nine? Like, yeah. or I don't know, but I just it was it was an awful rev, uh, realization. So I just yeah, had so to come do? up with a plan. The first thing I did, I moved to Europe. And I moved to London first in the EU, I should say. Yep. That didn't work. And then, yep. I, then I came back. To do and, catering. Uh, to do catering, yeah. You're like, you're like tinkering during this season. And by the way, yeah. this season of your life, correct me if I'm wrong, you're in your mid-30s. You're right. You're, so, you're, you did math very well. <laughs> well, and the reason why I say that is because a lot of people, you know, like this isn't like she was 20 years old figuring things out. Like she had a career... And then there was the, the, the agony of that not working out. And I know mm-hmm. there are people listening who've had that experience. And then there was a season in your mid-30s. And all, the other thing I want to point out is your tinkering is hustling. Like you were you were working and going to night, night school, was it? Yes. Like you were pardon the, like you're working your ass off. Yes. It was, a, it, was, it was a mad hustle. I'm, it was like, um, by any means necessary, was I going to not only learn what I want to know in a regimented way, but I was also going to do it very quickly because I have to get back on the ground. Well, and one of the quotes that you said in another interview, I want to make sure that I say this right. Let's see. Mm-hmm. It's around competition. You said, I know I'm a competitor. And while you're tinkering, because I feel like Top Chef is the perfect combination of culinary arts and competition. Mm-hmm. So I feel like you are at your best when you're able to compete. Oh, yes. Yes. Right, that, that yeah. unleashes energy for you. It excites oh, you. It's fun. Yes. you know you knew that from the sport world. Mm-hmm. Was there any competitive juice in the tinkering stage? So, with my trials during that time period of my life, became a came a lot of emotional trauma and a, and more even more insecurity in my as far as my decision making abilities are concerned. I made a decision to marry this man. It didn't work out. I made a decision to do all these things athletically that it didn't and that didn't work out. You know, I I trusted that I was going to be better over and over again, year in year out, and that didn't work out. And I spent a hundred and fifty thousand dollars trying to nurse my way back to health. Yeah, and and that was that's essentially money that I could have had. And I'm like, Ugh. you yeah. know, so I, I began to lose trust in myself. So when I say it was just, I was in survival mode. It's just, I was just trying to do something that I knew I loved. And because I, I really need to search deeply for that, by the way. And yeah. then, you know, and then just give it, give it 150% and just hope for the best. It was, I, I, I never lost hope, but I did lose a little bit of, of trust. Um, yeah. It was really hard to, when you don't trust yourself. Yeah. Well, and just uh, to connect on that, uh, I'm also divorced and mm-hmm. had a similar experience around the same time. Mm-hmm. And there, you're right. There is a a fear of... The, for me, there was like a the grief of losing the, the dream of a future that was never going to happen. Yes. Yes. And then there's also the insecurity about, well, now what do I do? There's a, there's a self-doubt and an insecurity that creeps in. What did your community look like during that grief slash reinvention slash insecurity season look like? Mm. Not for lack of trying, but vir- virtually non-existent because yeah. my misery does not like company at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, like, I wanted to be miserable by myself. Miserable by myself. I was in solitude for a little bit, uh, but it was it was by choice. Yeah, not because no one was reaching out. Now, would you would you say that in some ways that was like a cocoon that was necessary, like every time for a season, or would you say in retrospect, I wish I would have maybe let people in sooner? How would you are now looking back? How would you diagnose that season? For as think that you're talking to people who are in a season of struggle or grief, Mm -hmm. would you say, "Hey, yeah, just take a season and kind of be with yourself"? Um, What kind of advice would you give? It definitely depends on the person. Mm -hmm. I know myself, and well, my immature self had a Mm -hmm. tendency to lash out. Yeah, and 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 I don't want to make people feel bad because I feel bad. I know when I have to. I knew then when I needed to isolate myself as not to cause more damage or harm to anybody yeah. that I might care about. Yeah. And right now, like where I am right now, um, I fully embrace people and help because <laughs> I know I'm serious because I know that my mature self knows that, that hurting somebody else's feelings does not make my feelings <laughs> feel better. You know, yeah. it does not make me feel better. And actually like my mature self also wants to do the opposite. I'm here to, 
to make people feel better. Yes. You know, or to help people feel better. Well, and look, your story is not, it's easy. I appreciate you being willing to go into the darkness Mm -hmm. if only because the light is so evident with all the things that you're doing now in philanthropy, in the culinary arts, the awards, everything, you know, Mm -hmm. that's what makes that season of your life so contrasted. I think it's nice to hear people listening to this because, oh my God, I want to listen to this person who's winning. I appreciate it when people are willing to say, and in this particular moment of my life, I was not winning. Yeah. I think there's, there's beauty there. You got, you got your schooling, tried your bounce back. Sorry, too old. <laughs> yeah, too old. Yeah. Too old. Okay. Catering. Yes. Can I, yeah, keep going. Catering, uh, working for Chef Monica Pope here in this city. Um, just, you know, enjoying her teachings and also the teachings of her staff that was in place and just really immersing myself in all things culinary. And she is a person in the city that is a trailblazer to farm to table um, mm. uh, culture here. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was a great place to learn. Um, and, you know, and she had a, a team of um, really good cooks there. And I found out later, you know, that, you know, she was busy building business. So she was not in the kitchen as much. And that's normally how a sh- an executive chef owner's position is, especially mm-hmm. if she has no, like right hand person that is is truly devoted and dedicated to being that like a a chef de cuisine or a sous chef and so she didn't have either one of those she just had a kitchen manager and all of that so you know she would write the menus and all of that they would execute they would you know and I would just be there through that whole process uh, learn learning how did you meet her by the way um i emailed her when i was in uh london sitting on my bed jobless Huh. <laughs> you know, and I was like, I need a plan when yeah. I get when I hit that when I get back to Houston. And I just I told her I wanted to meet, and I went back to Houston, and we met like within a week when I when I returned. Now this is an obscure question, but do you remember even the gist of what that email said? And the reason why I'm asking is because I'm really fascinated by the way that people advocate for themselves mm-hmm. and and the way that they reach out to people who could have something to offer them and when it actually works out. And so like even like the way that people craft emails, I find really fascinating how yeah. they reach out. You probably get a lot of emails. I get some emails where people are like, hey, can I get can I pick your brain or whatever? And it's like, you don't have time. No, you can't pick my brain. What, right. what exactly. I think that I just told her that I was a huge fan and mm-hmm. I I told her a little bit about my story and mm-hmm. I told her I would love to meet meet her and learn from her if she's at all willing. I think I knew she was willing because she was... Uh, there were pictures all over of her helping people or teaching people or having people help her. And so I thought that maybe I could be one of those people. Oh, that's awesome. And um, we met and uh, we hit it off and I started working with her immediately. Her restaurant then was called Tafia mm-hmm. and she hired me to, to work some farmer's markets for her at first and to work special events. And then when she uh, switched her concept over to her new concept, Sparrow. Uh, she rebranded, um, redid the menu and all of that. Um, she hired me to be um, one of the lead, lead positions in her kitchen, which is my first true kitchen job. And what was the time frame from email to first real kitchen job? About a year. About a Wow. Yeah. That's fast. Yeah. That's and, great. And, and while I was doing uh, markets... For her, um, she encouraged me to also um, become a farmer's market vendor for myself. Um, she she taught me the ropes of farmer's markets. So, yeah, so what's a what's a farmer's market? So, a okay, farmer's so market vendor. What's that? Oh, oh, this is a tongue twister, huh? Um, so basically, <laughs> it's someone that if you're selling or preparing food, like you you will you will prepare something that's like um, market driven, something uh, local locally driven and mm-hmm. um and you will package it uh for for sale um with a manufacturer's license. And um and so she taught me how to do that and I started creating food and doing that. So you're she she's teaching you how to be an entrepreneur. Yes. Was that your first I guess Kate what would you say was your first foray in entrepreneurialism? Being a a personal trainer. Personal Oh, interesting. Yeah, cuz I skipped over world. that. Yeah, in the no, sport that's world. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, while I was uh, fighting back those seven years, I was um, I was earning a living personal training. Nice. So, so you knew how to market yourself. You knew how to sell. You knew how to work with clients and all that kind of stuff. Yes, a, a bit. Yeah, a bit. <laughs> I mean, and I was learning as I went, obviously. And, yeah. um, and also, 
while the battle during that time period, honestly, was just developing the confidence to talk to people because like, I was just so nervous all the time. And I was, I wanted to be so convincing. Yes. Um, but I had to first believe what I was saying. I was like, do you believe yourself? Like, I don't know. I don't yes. trust myself. You know, so it's like, you know, yes. it could be paralyzing, you know, but um, every, every time I got the opportunity, I did it anyways, even though I was nervous and I was stumbling over my words and yes. People may not have all, at all been convinced that I could actually do the job I could say it, say that I was doing, but they knew that I was an Olympian. So, so I had that, you know, and um, at least you had being the one of the best in the world at something. Yeah. And I just really appreciated them um, allowing me the opportunity to push them because I, I can tell you that my clients were, were appreciative. Well, and a few things around that one is entrepreneurialism is, is a sport just like mm-hmm. anything else is a game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and there are muscles. There's mm-hmm. there, there's the technique, but then there's mm-hmm. also the stamina mm-hmm. that it takes. And you and you have to get your reps in. Yeah. And you were getting your reps in early, and it's clumsy and awkward. Just like if you were to watch me go to the gym, it would be <laughs> clumsy and awkward. But you, there's no short circuiting or or shortcutting that process. And I'll say, uh, and I'm looking to see if you resonate with this. It is ten times harder, I think, to sell yourself. Than it is to sell others. One thousand percent. Yeah, it's a whole uh, other animal. Yeah, it's a whole other thing, and I I cannot agree with you more. Like I can, I mean, I can big up and talk up somebody like without even thinking about it, and then when it comes mm-hmm. to myself, I'm like, uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I guess I'm pretty strong. You know, like, <laughs> you know, you know, like what is this about? <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm kind of like a world champion. Maybe I can. <laughs> I, maybe I, I have something to offer. Yeah. yeah. If you want to make the most of your life, you've got to learn how to manage your energy. And if you want to manage your energy, you have to know what motivates you. That's why Novus Global created a free assessment to help people around the world discover what's motivating them and how to maximize that to accomplish everything they want in life. Novus Global's motivation assessment helps you understand the five different motivators everyone experiences and which of those five are most powerfully affecting you in your life and leadership. This free assessment includes your results and an ebook describing the five motivators and how to make the most of your personalized results. To take the assessment, go to novus.com global forward slash assessment. That's novus, N-O-V-U-S dot global forward slash assessment. It's time you finally created a life that is deeply satisfying and energizing. So go to novus.global forward slash assessment to take our free motivation assessment today. Not to like slumdog millionaire the conversation a little bit, but like imagine if you didn't have that experience getting those awkward reps in where you would have been when the time was right for you to step into that space. You know, there's a lot of serendipity maybe or, or fortuitiveness that allows you to do what you do. So you reached out to Monica and you, you connected. You looked for someone who looked like they were generous and loved to invest in people and was getting invested themselves. That, by the way, I've never thought of before. That's mm-hmm. really brilliant. And, and they love all, their craft. They, they, they have to craft. really, yeah, they really love food. Yeah. And you can tell all that through her. I treated every, you know, I'm, I, essentially I was in school again. I was learning a craft. And so I needed to surround myself with people that, that knew what I wanted to know, you know, and, um, or at least knew how to get the information that I wanted. Um, and she had been in the business, um, for a long time and she has like pretty much a cult following in, in, in the city, Mm. which is pretty awesome. And you got a front row seat to that. Yeah. To see it happening. Yeah, for sure. And 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 again, it's kind of the same thing looking to see if this resonates. I don't like you you could read a book. If she wrote a book, you could read a book. You could like Mm -hmm. listen to her podcast. If she had a podcast, but I don't think there's anything that can replace physical proximity, like watching her. And I guess maybe I can put this in the form of a question. What are some of the things you learned from her that maybe she didn't realize that she taught you? Well, she was the one who first taught me that I was a good cook. Hmm. I didn't know. I didn't know. I only knew I love to do it. So she was the, she was the one who taught me that she taught me about developing flavors and how to read a recipe and understand it without ever having to taste it. And to reproduce it with authenticity. So she taught me these things. She taught me how to captivate an audience. Then I didn't know that she was teaching me at that time, but I would watch her over and over again, um, teach cooking classes and um, they, people loved her. Huh. What does that mean? Like, what would she do? How do you captivate? She was just audience? entertaining. Like, and like, and she just like, the way that she spoke about food, food was very romantic and people like fell like in love with, like her thought processes when it came to creating dishes and she had a unique way of building dishes that people love so much. 
and she was able to lock people in and they they would pretty much follow her forever because of the way that she cooks. Wow. Yeah. I developed my confidence to be in front of people and teach people and to be and do to do it my way, even if it's imperfect. Hmm. I, I think that there's a perfection within her own imperfection that that people are captivated by. So yeah. yeah. And and that was something you picked up. Yeah. So after I left Monica's, I tried catering a little bit. I rented a kitchen. I didn't know what I was doing at all. Failed horribly. And and during that time period, I was also doing four farmers markets a week. It just became draining, like really tiring. You're lugging things in the car, out the car, in the fridge. It's just a lot. Yeah. There's a lot. So um, I stopped doing. I stopped doing those, and I was like, you know what? I I think I want to. I want to better my skills. You know, I am regimented in my growth. I have always have been. And so I was like, I want to be better in order to, in order to be better. I'm, I must train under a coach. Where hmm. do I find my coach? You know, so I listed five restaurants where I wanted to work uh-huh. um, in Houston that I thought were good teaching kitchens. And this was actually um, the advice that was given to me from my chef mentor, Mark Holly, who's here in the city. Mm-hmm. And he was like, do this. It's a great exercise. Call them up, apply, go stage, do whatever you have to do to get in the door. So I did that. It was, you know, three, I think two or two of them called me back, you know, not great response, you know, and <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Um, I went on, I went on two trials. That's what stage or stages. That's what they're called. Mm-hmm. And both places offered me a job. I chose um, to work for high hospitality, which is a restaurant group that started in Austin. Specifically, the concept is uh, Uchi here in Houston. And um, and I started as a prep cook. From sous chef to prep cook is where I went. And uh, just because I don't know, the, that's a, that's backwards, right? That is backwards. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is very backwards. And it was, but it was fine because I, I, I was fully immersed in everything that I wanted mm. to learn. And I just needed to convince myself that the pay cut, the extreme pay cut uh, was going to be worth it. And also tricked myself into believing it was an internship. And I huh. did that very well. Huh. That's yeah, awesome. I did. I, yeah. did. Um, I was like, this is not a job. This is an internship. You're getting paid to learn. That's great. And that made it okay. Yeah. And it made it okay that I was broke all the time, you know, it's like, because I'm getting paid to learn and thank you. So I, I, I felt grateful and appreciative. Yeah. Instead of overworked. uh, That is brilliant. Like, honestly, are you going to write a book about this someday? I I am. Yes. Um, I think it's going to be, it's going to be a a memoir um, because I think that these stories are great. Your story is textbook for how to reinvent yourself. Like textbook, like the get like getting getting a job around greatness at any level and calling it an internship. That is that requires so much courage and so much foresight and I used the word earlier wisdom. Mm-hmm. And I just love I just love when I meet people who are doing that or who have done that. And then so so keep going because you have this internship, the <laughs> quote internship, mm-hmm. and then yes. what happens from there? Oh, I don't. I mean, it was just so. It was a tough school. Like Uchi was a very tough school. And that's how I knew I was in the right place. Mm. It wasn't always friendly. It wasn't always confidence producing. But <laughs> but but I went in I went in every day knowing that I already knew how to cook and people love my food. As I went in every day as a sponge with my knife and I just, you know, I did all the knife work. I made all the sauces. I made you know, it's a very, very detailed and high volume prep list that the prep team had, and huh. we had to be done at a certain time. Huh. And I wasn't very good at it in the beginning because I was not familiar at all with that level of precision. Yeah. So I, I had it. I had to. I mean, even up to the type of knife I had, like I realized, like later on, the reason I had so much trouble cutting these. They, these small brunoise, what you call of these of this apple that I needed to cut them, people threw away so many times because <laughs> they were wrong. Mm. It was because my knife was not only heavy, but for a right-handed person. So I couldn't cut precisely. So these are the types of lessons that you learn under the tutelage of a restaurant that will teach you new things yeah. that help you grow. You know, and um and you just have to be able to stick to it and you have to be and like 
you have to be resilient. You have to be tough and, and you have to want it bad enough. And some people don't want the lesson that bad, you know, they don't want to be challenged in that way. And I just can't, I came from being challenged all my life, you know? So I don't, you know, does it feel good? No. But will I rise to the occasion? Yes. Because I want to be better. Yes. You know? And so I fought my way from the prep team to working the pantry station, which is another step in my progression to working the fry station to the grill and to saute. And the final stage of my progression was uh, being uh, promoted to sous chef in their, mm. in their system. And so, what, was the, what was the time frame for that? From three years. Three. So in three years from intern to sous chef. Yes. And you were, and you hustled. I hustled. I hustled. And in every forward step, there was a new realm of things that you thought were impossible. Yeah. You know, and so, so that's, that's what Uchi was like for me. And I forgot, I forgot a stage in my progression. Oh, I went yeah, from sure. saute um, to, to prep manager because okay. I started to manage what I was uh, a team that I was a, once a part of. And then after that step, I became a sous chef. At what stage would you say leadership really starts to kick in in the kitchen? If it's a two man station. Also you, you get some preliminary leadership opportunities huh. with like, for example, the pantry, the pantry kitchen, Station was a two-man station. If you have a new person, you 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 teach them exactly how things are done and what's being done. You're making sure that you're holding them accountable for their standards of the kitchen, uh, and that's how Uchi was able to maintain the standard that that they did because everyone was holding everyone accountable. That is awesome. So there, yeah. there was a culture of accountability. Exactly. E- even people at the quote the lower end of the totem pole had something yeah. to be accountable for and to. Right. Oh, that's awesome. And was that that's unique? Yeah, I, I would say so. In terms of my my kitchen experiences, um, even you know, with my small stints in, in uh London, I would say that which were also really good kitchens, they made quality food. Mm-hmm. I would say that that that's unique because the standard is very important and no one deviates from it. And it it really pretty much made us who we were as a restaurant, and that's why. Um, the restaurant has been so elite in the city for a very oh. long time. And of course, that, that's a fantastic place for you to get some reps. Mm-hmm. That's oh, fantastic. boy, did I get these reps. <laughs> oh, I did. I did. So late August. I'm very excited about that restaurant. And for people listening, I want them you know check it out in the show notes. And it's opening in uh, July slash August, possibly late August. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> As you think about your culture that you want to create in your kitchen with your leaders is, I guess, what are you, what are you pulling from? What are you thinking? Are you wanting it to be like that experience? Are you wanting it to be different? How are you thinking about the kind of leadership culture you want to create at late August? Mm, Good question. What I want to start with, I need, I want to, everyone that I hire for, for, um, to be on my team, I want them to to know that it, that this will be truly a team effort. Everyone will be respected and appreciated for the part that they play mm-hmm. and expected to maintain the standard that, that is set upon the inception of this restaurant. And I'm going to employ them to make the standard their own so that they can teach, teach everyone that comes in the door so that, so that we can make sure that we are who we say we are. And mm-hmm. um, all of that will go in, will show on the other side in the guest experience when we don't deviate from a restaurant or we are completely consistent in everything that we do. Everyone will feel that on the other side. And that brings a, a guest experience that, that cannot be matched, honestly, yeah. you know, or copied. So, or copied or copied. And so I'm going to be working very hard to, to make sure that I am not only uh, teaching well, but I am allowing people to help me create this culture as a team will be able to maintain it. And what does that look like pregame? So when I go to a restaurant opening, give us a snapshot of what, all the work that's been done before anyone ever sets foot in to put something in their mouths. So standard SLPs will be created for both the front of the house and the back of the house. I have a, a director of operations that we hired to help uh-huh. me in that for those processes. So they will already be in place when we find our GM. Nice. So he would just be following our guidelines that we set. Oh, interesting. And, uh, yes. And uh, I will be doing my own kitchen SOPs and I will hire a chef de cuisine very early because I don't plan to man the restaurant for more than eight months after opening. 
to allow me to either open more concepts under the restaurant hospitality group umbrella. Yes. Or free me up to do other more different opportunities. For you as a leader, there's this is a false dichotomy, but there's like the yeah. kind of people who are like business leaders and that's what mm-hmm. they love with like a garnish of artistry. And then there's like artistic leaders with a garnish of business. Yes. Where, where do you fit? I am an artistic leader with a garnish of business if I'm developing my garnish of business actually. Yes. Well, <laughs> you, you know, partner with an amazing person. Yes. Uh, so uh, Chef Chris Williams is an amazing business person. He is fearless and a bull and he makes things happen. And it's really nice to have such a strong partner as we enter into this endeavor together. I'm very excited for you. Chris had to kind of persuade you to do this late August thing, didn't he? Like He did. He did. Although it wasn't like that difficult. Like um, I knew that if I did not do it, I would, I would be indebted to him forever, to be honest, because he, he's the reason that I was able to, to go compete on like uh, top chef. Mm. You know, he, he paid for my mother's care while I was gone. He showed me exactly what type of guy he was. You know, he was completely supportive mm. and with, with a heart of gold. The only persuasion uh, point of persuasion was um, making a decision. So early post top chef. I just didn't know exactly what I wanted to do or who I wanted to partner with. I thought that maybe I wanted to open a restaurant that was uh, my, my grandmother's namesake that w- reflected our her Southern culture. Yeah. And um, I thought that that's the project I wanted to do first. He was like, well, we can do that one after late August. Like we can, like, it's like, he's, selling. It, he's like, we can do whatever you want. He's like, you want to, you want a cheesesteak shop done. Oh, you want to brew beer? Yes, let's do that. I was like, okay, so we have already five five concepts in the hole. Will you do this one? Because, and he was like, but the selling point honestly was everything that we do will have a philanthropic effort attached to it. Mm-hmm. Like in everything that we do, we it will be in the design that we are helping some pe- people in some way. And I was like, okay. Yeah. Yes. He was like, so will you join me? while we change the world. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> and I said, yes. Come on. Yes, I will actually join you on that mission to change the world. <laughs> Good. Well, so then this will be the last question. So then talk yeah. to us a little bit about what you two are up to, what you're up to, that people can support and understand. And the, a frame for this before you answer is, um, I really, of, of course, I admire people who do well. Mm-hmm. But I really admire people who do good. And to be able to do both, I think, is part of what one of the joys of learning how to be alive. Right. And as I was getting to know you through the internet and the research and all the things, mm-hmm. that, kept, that kept popping up over and over and over again. And I just, you're, what, what we, in our world, we call it nobility. The desire you have to be noble in a world uh, that sometimes is less than noble, I think, is worth admiring. And so I'd be thrilled if you would tell our, our audience how you're using all the, all the philanthropic things, like how are you using your skill set to be laced with goodness so that it's not just good for you, but for others? Awesome. Well, Chris, the name of the nonprofit that Chris developed single-handedly is uh, called Lucille's 1913. Mm-hmm. The mission of this uh, nonprofit is uh, to, to battle food insecurity and impoverished neighborhoods. Right now, our focus our uh, seniors, they've spent their life, you know, caring for others, giving to others. And now they're in a place where they are struggling for wholesome meals mm-hmm. on, on a daily basis. So we feed over a thousand uh, seniors a day. Wow. Upon about 350,000 meals have gone out to date. Um, and we're super excited about um, our efforts thus far. Mm-hmm. And we now own about 50 acres of land to plant foods the for, for impoverished neighborhoods. And uh, we have a farm that we're going to uh, start growing on um, in a neighborhood called Kendleton. And Kendleton, it was, um, was a farming community of African-Americans once upon a time, but that changed after um, the farming culture changed in the States. They've lost their uh, ability to, to do this job. We're helping to, them to regain their skill so that with that, they can regain their independence. And um, what I think is um, important, yeah. like I believe that the household income there right now is uh, about 15000 or 12, wow. 
it's uh, between thirteen and fifteen thousand dollars a year. Yeah, and we're looking to to help them change that while injecting quality food into yeah. their communities um, through our mercantiles that we're going to build because these are food deserts. They have no grocery stores, nothing. Yep. And let's 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 slow that down just a little bit for people who are listening. Food desert was what I was the word phrase I was hoping you would say. Yeah. Which is, and I'm going to, you can add to it, but yes. so essentially certain parts of the country, you, you'd have to travel a, a horrible distance, an un- unrealistic distance to find food that's healthy for you. Like 7-Eleven yeah. is not going to do it. But the only food, imagine living in a community where the only food that's available to you is essentially garbage. Right. Exactly. And, and how that creates, you know, health problems, obesity, pro- all these things flow from this. And so how do we help every American and people all over the world, but Americans too, get access to healthy food. It's not as easy as it sounds. And so did I, first of all, did I do that right? Did I? You did. That was, that was great. That was great. Really. And then, yeah. And with that, you know, with all of these health issues and not being able to care for yourself the way that you're supposed to, there's a certain insecurity that comes with it. Like, Mm. you know, the the inability to take care of yourself in your household. And we're looking to inject a feeling of security back into these homes. So that that's part of what we're doing. That is the next phase of our mission. And last year, my project was to develop a fermentation lab uh, for for the nonprofit so that uh, we can have um, a pipeline to, so that we can create a way to to utilize these overages based on you know the the, the vegetables that we have in our pipeline. That means that I equipped myself with knowing exactly what I was going to do with these uh, vegetables, and uh, we're currently canning and fermenting in practice of what's to come. Oh, I love it! It's it's inspiring to see you and Chris and others look at food from a different perspective than I think most people do as a mechanism for uh, progress. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's very, very exciting. Where do you want people to go to, to get to know you in, in the work that you're doing? I would love for you to check Chef Don Burrell mm-hmm. and chefdonburrell.com. The first would be my Instagram handle. The, sec- the second is my, my website. Mm-hmm. Attached to both of those are um, the restaurant concepts, Late August and Lucille's. Late August is late August underscore HTX and um, Lucille's is just Lucille's Houston. And please also please uh, check out what we're doing for the nonprofit Lucille's 1913. And, you know, and if it, if you feel moved about what we're doing, you're, you're welcome to donate during, on that page. We can use all the help that we can get. So thank you. And uh, if you find yourself in Houston, Definitely go and uh, and check out late August and enjoy the culinary arts. She's only going to be there for the first eight months. So if you're listening to this and it's in the first eight <laughs> eight months since it's open, I'll uh, be in and out. I'll be going. in and out. Um, but like I won't be manning the kitchen one hundred percent of the time after the eight month mark. It's my plan. But you, things things Wonderful. change, right? Now we're gonna we got well you got other yeah. restaurants to start. Yeah. We got we got things to do. And uh, thank you. Thank you, Don, so much. Uh, I love your story. Uh, Thanks for the vulnerability. Thanks for the authenticity. Of course, wouldn't expect anything less. It's fun listening to people talk about all the things they do right. But none of us have had a story that's all up and to the right. All of us have had downturns in our careers and our relationships. And I think that's when we're most hungry to learn. And so thank you for showing us not only that you have those moments in your life, but more importantly, how you were able to dig yourself out. And I think that's extraordinary. And yeah, that's it's exactly why we do this podcast. So thank you. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. And thank you for the opportunity. It was great talking to you. All right. We have a few more things to let you know about before you go. First, podcast reviews really help us serve more people. So if this podcast is helpful for you, we'd love your help to get it into the hands of as many leaders as possible. Please leave us a review, even if it's not five stars. And if you really want to go the extra mile, let us know what you'd like to hear about more of or what you think we could do better to serve you and the people that you care about. We drop new episodes every week. So subscribe and watch us continue to learn to create resources that serve you powerfully. Speaking of resources, we have a lot online and they're all free. We have free assessments, educational videos, articles from sources like Fast Company written by our coaches and clients, all designed to help you use our tools in your everyday life and leadership. To dive into the free treasure trove of goodies we have for you, go to novus.global and then click on resources. Some of you have been listening for a while and you haven't yet taken that next step to hire a coach. This is your time. I can't tell you how often I've heard from hundreds of clients around the world that they wish they would have talked to us sooner. If you have a sense that you're 
capable of more, we would be thrilled to explore what coaching could do for you and those you influence. To start that journey, simply email us at begin at novus.global or click the link in the show notes. You also might be listening to this and maybe you want to be a coach or maybe you already are a coach and you want to build a six or seven figure practice coaching people you love in a way that brings life to you and your clients. Well, that's why we created the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. It is an in-depth coaching apprenticeship designed to help you create the coaching practice of your dreams. The first step in exploring that is simple. Just go to www.mp.institute. That's www.mp, as in Meta Performance, .institute. And we have free assessments to help you see what kind of training you'd need to create a meta-performing coaching practice the way our coaches do at Novus Global. Head on over today. And finally, and for some of you, this will be the most important part. This podcast was produced by Rainbow Creative with Matthew Jones as senior producer and Jeremy Davidson as editor and audio engineer. We love working with these guys. To find out more about how to create a podcast for you and your business, check them out at rainbowcreative.co. Thank you so much for listening. We love making these for you. And remember, dare to go beyond high performance.